0: Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. How did prehistoric people in Britain view and understand the world around them. What did they smell, hear and see? Francis Pryor is one of Britain's leading archaeologists and a familiar face from TV series such as Time Team. Following the publication of Francis's new book, Scenes from Prehistoric Life, our content director, Dave Musgrove, caught up with him to talk all about the prehistoric mindset.
1: So Francis, um, yeah. welcome, welcome to the podcast. Your new book, Scenes from Prehistoric Life, from the Ice Age to the Coming of the Romans, has just been published. It's a great book. Um, so congratulations on that. And thank you very much for joining us on the podcast. First up, how are you?
2: I'm very well, actually, Dave. Yes, uh, feeling remarkably relaxed.
1: Good, good stuff. So as I said, it's a really uh, interesting book uh, covering a very big topic, a lot of time, uh, loads of detail and colour and loads of stories covered. And obviously we can't uh, hope to to cover all the riches that you talk about. Um, but what I was hoping to do in the course of this conversation is to focus in a bit on on a, a few topics that uh, that I think are interesting, trying to understand maybe a little bit about how prehistoric people might have viewed the world that they uh, existed in. And when I say prehistoric obviously that's a very big term to use and uh, I'm going to sort of invite you to pick uh, moments from from the topic when I ask you the questions. but firstly I think before we jump into it what we need to do is just define prehistory for our listeners. Um, would you be able to give us a very top level summation of what we mean by prehistory and, and the various periods within it?
2: right well in a nutshell prehistory means pre before history. And history is written history. Um, So, basically, you're talking about uh, people who lived before the introduction of writing. And in Britain, that happened with the arrival of the Romans in AD 43. Um, So, prehistory is essentially everything that happened in Britain before the life of Christ is probably the simplest way of looking at it. And um, it's divided up into three broad periods. The oldest, which goes from about a million years ago, is the Stone Age. And then that continues um, through the Ice Age um, into uh, post-Ice Age times when you get the uh, Middle and the Uh, new Stone Ages. So in the Ice Age and earlier, it's um, the Old Stone Age. And then you get the Bronze Age, and that starts around 2500 BC. And that continues until about 750 BC, when you have the Iron Age. And um, so there are your three ages, the ages of stone, bronze, and iron. And bronze is a mixture of copper and tin, and iron is just the metal iron. So, basically, what those three ages are telling us is how technology changed. So, in the Stone Age, you're bashing stone, you're not using much heat, and then in uh, the Bronze Age, you're starting to melt metal. And make pottery and that sort of thing, and uh, so that requires the manipulation of heat, and so it's quite a jump in technology. And then when you get to the Iron Age, it requires a lot of heat, and uh, so that really is quite a big step in in technological development.
1: Okay, thank you. So, listeners, try and keep those uh, broad distinctions in your mind as we as we go through this conversation. Um, now, now, Francis, you've uh, you've had a very interesting career I think and it might be useful just to, to ask you to summarize a few of the things you've done because you're much more than just a, uh, a practicing archaeologist you have uh, dug and, and, and done a lot of digging but you've done a few other interesting things as well and I guess uh, your activities help inform your view of, of, of the past um, so maybe you could just give us a very brief summation of, of your of your career your varied career and maybe yeah. give us a, a little taste of what you're trying to do with this book because you've written quite a few books on, on this topic.
2: Yeah. Yes. Well, I was uh, I, I read archaeology at Cambridge because I'd always been very interested in the subject. Um, and largely because um, when I was a, a schoolboy, I did geology and botany and uh, zoology. Um, and I loved those subjects, but they lacked something. And that what they lacked was people. And I really wanted, when I went to university, to do a subject that involved people. And um, archaeology was what came to mind. And I went on many digs and did that sort of thing. And then when I finished at university, um, I very nearly stopped being an archaeologist. And uh, I, I was offered a, a job by uh, Brian Epstein, who was the manager of the Beatles, um, because I did a lot of uh, work for college balls at Cambridge, and I, I, he offered me a job as a as a road manager. And uh, like a madman, I turned it down, because he was offering me £50 pounds a week, and I think if I was doing well on a dig, I'd be getting a fiver a week. But at any rate, <laughs> I turned it down and uh, uh, started doing a bit of digging. And then... Um, I realized that I wasn't really getting anywhere. I thought I'd better do something new. So I went to Canada on an impulse and uh, uh, got a job at the Royal Ontario Museum in Toronto for 10 years. And then I decided I'd come back to England and um, work on British sites. And then I did a lot of that. I was busily digging sites ahead of the development of Peterborough Newtown. And then, um, oh gosh, when was it? About 1980, I thought, I'm digging up sites of farms, prehistoric farms, Bronze and Iron Age farms, and I'm writing about how they manage their livestock and how they laid out their fields. And yet, I've got no real practical hands-on experience of what I'm digging up, even though my family... had were farmers, you know, I, I didn't actually know what it was like to run a farm. So I bought some land, bought uh, about 50 acres of land, but slowly, it took a bit of doing, and built up a flock of a couple of hundred sheep. And I kept them for about 35 years. Um, so I had a sort of medium-sized sheep farm that was, paid me two days a week. And so I was an archaeologist and a full-time, well, part-time sheep farmer. And that's when I started writing books. And I did 20 years of television with Time Team. So, you know, I've led quite a quite a varied life. And uh, running through it all has been archaeology.
1: <laughs> so um, so you could have been a Beatles roadie, but weren't, yeah. but you have been a farmer. So, um, <laughs> so uh, would the of Beatles have been interested in archaeology, do you think?
2: that's interesting um i doubt it although i don't know they're very intelligent chaps but uh yeah <laughs>
1: um and then so, so this latest book what's uh what's what's your idea here what, what story are you trying to tell
2: well the idea of uh, scenes from prehistoric life is to i want to get inside the heads of people living in the prehistoric past what were they thinking about when they visited Stonehenge, say? Or what were they thinking about when they built their houses, when they when they milked their cows? Why were they doing these things? Because while I was being a farmer myself, I got a, a, a completely different slant on life because people would turn up, other farmers would turn up on the farm. And we talk about livestock and livestock management and diseases that sheep get and all the rest of it. And we also talked about their families and you know how they live their lives. And I was given a totally different slant on life. And I thought, well, wouldn't it be good if I could actually discover more about the way prehistoric people would have lived their lives, you know, what a husband and wife would have talked about as they sat down to a, a meal of marsh samphire or whatever it was they were eating, you know, and, and what would their food have tasted like? And and what was the motivation that drove them to cook and to eat food? And, you know, what was it like being a child in the Iron Age? Did Did you go to school? We don't think they did. But so how did you learn your family's history and the history of your settlement and community? And a lot of the sites that they constructed in prehistoric times were very elaborate. Um, I mean, you know, Stonehenge, everybody knows, is mathematically quite quite sophisticated. So, you know, there was knowledge. People had knowledge. But how did they regard their knowledge? And this is something that, you know, we've got to think about quite carefully. One of the things that worries me about people's attitudes to the past is that, people tend to patronize the past. They think they were simple. Whereas in reality, I think the breadth of their experience was a great deal wider than ours. I don't necessarily think that, you know, humanity has progressed hugely as we've moved forward in time. Um, you know, I sometimes think if some of the attitudes of some political leaders had been prevalent in the past... I know. Would they have been, would they have thrived the way that some dictators and people have in the present day? You know, would Hitler have been possible in the Iron Age? Personally, I rather doubt it. Because I think in some respects they were more civilized than us. Okay. So,
1: um, uh, I mean, we must explore might explore whether Hitler might have been possible in the Iron Age towards the end of the conversation. that's an interesting, very interesting um, observation. But but um, what I want to do now is just throw you a bunch of questions, which are going to sound a bit vague and airy-fairy. I'm going to use the word, you know, did prehistoric people do stuff? Um, obviously, as discussed, prehistory is a very long period of time. So I'm going to ask you a question and invite you to sort of pick moments and topics which might uh, helpfully answer the question. So um, my first question is... Um, did prehistoric people appreciate a good view? Now, that might sound a bit silly, um, but uh, I'm sort of referencing a point in your book where you talk about uh, the goat's hole cave, which you might want to tell us uh, a, a bit more about in your answer, uh, hmm. and, and the sense of, of that position in the landscape and how it looks out over over an area. So so what do you hmm. think? Did prehistoric people appreciate a good view?
2: Right. Um, the, 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 the big problem with this is that our appreciation of views is of their their beauty and it's their beauty as we have been taught to appreciate it by people like wordsworth and uh, you know the the the, the, the people who's, who who sang the praises of the lake district in the late 18th and early 19th century that that concept of beauty of landscape is relatively recent i mean the word landscape didn't exist in the English language until I think it was about the 17th century when it was introduced from uh, Holland. Um, And the the set-piece view that you look at for its own sake, well, of course, that's rubbish. You don't look at it for its own sake. You look at it because of what it does to you. And um, prehistoric people would have regarded the landscape in a very, very different way to the way we do. for example, distant hills, that sort of thing, wouldn't just be seen as a beautiful range of hills in the distance. That would have been the edges of the realm of the ancestors. That's where, you know, dead people probably went to um, when they ceased this life. Um, people had an idea that parts of the landscape were bridges to other realms. Water in particular, um, the sort of sites that I dig in the fens, people make offerings to. Thousands of spears, daggers, shields, all sorts of things were carefully placed in the water. Because once the, the dagger had been placed in the water, it passed from the land of the living to the land of the dead because you go below water and you drown. But you look at water and you can see your own reflection. So it's a mirror of the soul. There's a, a, Archaeologists use a word um, to describe this, which is, uh, well, it, it's numinous um, and, and it's liminal. Numinous means it, it's, it's uh, of the other, other world, and liminal means it's on the boundary. Um, from the Latin word limen, meaning a boundary. And some sites are liminal. They're on the boundary between the world of the ancestors and ours, like the Goats' Hole Cave in um, South Wales in Pevoland, um which is a cave which has on the edge of what would have been a huge plain, but it's now for a sea. Um, and in that cave, there was a burial um, of uh, a, a body which had been... Uh, surrounded and covered in red ochre, red red dust, red paint. And it was always assumed when it was first done that it was a lady and that she was probably a prostitute because red is for prostitution. But um, uh, when the bones were looked at professionally by scientists, they turned out to be males. So that blew that theory apart. Um, but basically, it was a ceremonial burial thousands of years ago in a place which was on the edge of the known, experienced world. And um, caves often were treated like this. They were very special places. And um, so a view to a prehistoric person would mean far more in some respects, I think, than a pretty view as we'd see it. So that's uh, that's a really interesting answer.
1: Obviously, you're... Uh, you're theorising to, to a great extent here because we we simply we don't know, you know as you said in your uh, initial definition we don't know what prehistoric people thought they didn't we have no writings it. so how how concrete can you be in these answers when you when you talk about um, uh, prehistoric people seeing a landscape as a landscape of the dead for instance what mm. what what is the evidence for, for making those sorts of comments
2: the best evidence is the sighting of for example, uh, Bronze Age burial mounds, they're often on along the line of the top of a hill. Uh, they're carefully positioned to be seen from roundabout, and they you see them sticking up as humps. Um, uh, the, the landscape, of, of well, well, we'll get onto it later at Stonehenge, has got barrows all around the great stones, but separated well back from it, most of them. Um, It's the positioning of these sites. Uh, The wet sites are particularly notable. They're often on um, uh, streams and rivers that probably form boundaries. um, And rivers naturally form a boundary, a territorial boundary. So these sites would have been uh, areas where people of different ethnicities perhaps, but more likely just different tribal traditions would meet and um yeah, converse in, in 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 special neutral places and those special neutral places were later developed into large sort of uh, camp-like areas where people could get together and feast and build build uh, little halls and, and um they're rather special sites and uh these these sites are never just at random. Everything is very carefully positioned. And that's why I think they, they had structure to their view of the past. And can I be certain of these things? No, of course I can't. But one of the great things about archaeology is it frees you up to use your imagination. And I do get slightly fed up with some academic approaches, which says it's, it's all about analysis it's all about building models and blah, 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 blah. No, it isn't. You know, if you're going to understand human culture, as James Joyce knew only too well, you must use your imagination.
1: Now, uh, thinking about sight and the way people saw things, one of the really interesting aspects to, to, to this story, I think, and what's something you talk about in the book a bit, is colour and, and mm. how prehistoric people might have viewed colour and, and particularly mm. sort of shiny things. What more have you
2: got to say about that? Yes, well, I mean, we have this... Uh, I just mentioned it with the Red Lady of Paviland. Um, you know, that, that the red ochre is a, an important part of, of um, Stone Age rituals. Uh, Colour uh, and shininess, um, I think a lot of these things are about reflection, because we take... Certain things for granted, they're part of our lives. I mean, for example, we all know what we look like. Yeah. Every single person living today checks his face in the mirror three or four times a day, I should think. And if he's looking at his mobile phone, he's doing it more often. And, you know, you're, you're, you know yourself intimately. And you're, you're, you wouldn't have been able to do this in prehistory people didn't have mirrors. Mirrors came along with glass. Um, The the earliest mirrors turn up in the last few centuries BC and they're polished copper. Um, They're beautifully decorated. When you actually look at them, you don't get a, Clear reflection of yourself because it's the, the the surface isn't as flat as you can get it with a machine, so it undulates and you get quite a distorted picture of yourself. But people obviously desperately wanted to be able to see their reflection, and um, they're usually found um, associated with women, uh, and they're beautifully decorated on the non-reflecting side. Maybe. Um, Britain is famous for various things. Um, Very few major artistic movements um, originated in Britain. We're much better at science. But English country gardens are one, and the other thing is Celtic art. And the Celtic art of the Iron Age uh, is best seen on, on mirrors, and and, uh, certain types of pottery and things. But it was a very important artistic movement that had influence right across Europe. And, you know, you've got to try to get inside of the head of these people. You know, what was motivating them to create these remarkable objects? And they were clearly very moved. And um, so, yes, I'm a great fan of of mirrors.
0: (laughs) Still to come on the History Extra podcast.
2: And I went into the the temple, as it probably was, um, but it was being constructed, and I was almost hit in the face by the strength of the smell. It actually pulled my skin and made my eyes water.
1: This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, Need to hire? You need indeed. What about sort of colours as well. That's mm. sort of how, how prehistoric people might have seen colours. I, mean, I, I'm, I, I was reading something, this is a bit out of our period actually, but mm. um, reading about a, a Viking uh, burial in Scandinavia, where uh, they, the, the excavators talked about the barrow itself being uh, created out of a kind of a bluey mud, and they kind of felt mm. that that might have been a significant aspect of, of the initial barrow creation. Do, do, do mm. can we Can we say anything about how, how people viewed colours specifically in the past?
2: Yes. Um, they had a subtle appreciation of colour. We know that from fabrics that have been found, um, some of Must Farm in the Fens, um, where the actual pattern in the fabric is very subtle. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's delicate, careful colouring. It wasn't all, you mustn't assume that people like garish colours. I think they had a subtle appreciation of colour. Um, and uh, one of the best examples of unusual colour that was very important are some flints that were found at a site called Blick Mead near Stonehenge. And the uh, water in the spring that where these flints were found um, dyes the, has dyed the stones a, a screaming pink extraordinary color it's an, it's actually algae in the water that do the dying and they're living they live in the water um, and this site became very important from a you know religious point of view uh, a long time ago you know going going back 6000 bc or thereabouts so you know color obviously did matter to people as did smell you know
1: Actually, let's move on to smell and sound yeah. if we can. Sort of going around the senses a bit. Um, can can you sort of get into the the prehistoric sensory experience at all? Obviously that, that smell and, and uh, sound don't really survive in archaeological context, but but um mm. what, what can you say about them? Uh
2: well um sound does survive in the archaeological context, and as much as the musical instruments survive. Um and um uh, a, a, a close friend of mine who, who lives just across the Fens from me uh, in March, um, he's a paleomusicologist. And uh, he has made recreations of uh, Iron Age and Bronze Age musical instruments, which, you know, one always assumed were sort of played in a rather crude way, you know. But no, when, when Graham plays these things, that's Beautifully subtle, absolutely wonderful. So the music, I think, could be extremely subtle. And you've got to think, you know, think of African tribal rhythms. Um, Again, they're amazingly subtle and difficult to do. And so I think that there's no reason on earth why Iron Age and Bronze Age music, and make no mistake, they would have sung and had music, uh, couldn't have been really remarkably sophisticated. Um, It just, unfortunately, it hasn't survived. Yet, I don't know. Um, And smell, um, I had an extraordinary moment uh, a long time ago, um, uh, back as uh, just sort of 2000 AD, I should add. um, uh, We were digging a site uh, called Seahenge on the North Norfolk coast, which was a a circle of uh, 55 timbers with an upside down oak tree in it. And that site was constructed in the year 2049 BC between April and June. We know that because of the tree ring dates. And we made a film about this on Time Team. It was one of the first Time Team documentaries. And as part of making the documentary, uh, we did a recreation, a reconstruction, full-sized reconstruction of the timber circle. And it was a, a ring of 55 posts. Uh, oak posts, all split, um, set edge on edge to make a solid wall with a very narrow entrance. And then in the middle was the upside down oak tree, which had had its bark stripped off. Now, splitting the outside posts and removing the bark from the oak tree, I don't think was purely done uh, to, you know, to spin out the timber. Uh, I think it was done. To release the smell of the tannic acid that is a part of oak, and when we made the reconstruction, I can remember uh, the, 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 the team broke up to have a, a, a tea break, and everyone was over at the, the at the cafe caravan getting a, a tea, and I went into the, the temple as it probably was, um, but it was being constructed. And I was almost hit in the face by the strength of the smell. It actually pulled my skin and made my eyes water. Now, I'm sorry, but if you're having someone, probably some your father or your mother, laid in the roots of this upside-down tree, and at the same time, that's their body, and at the same time, you're having this powerful smell of tannic acid, it's going to be an unbelievably uh, Strong emotional moment. I, I don't see how anyone could come through that without without floods of tears.
1: So, so you're imagining that people deliberately employing uh, smell as a as a sensory experience to to achieve some sort of end. Some I sort mean, of aim when yeah,
2: I mean, absolutely no doubt of it. Having done it, yes, no doubt.
1: Uh, what we what we really need now is the is the uh, smell of vision isn't it so get a sense of what so what, is, <laughs> what, what does that smell like is it is it can you describe it what's what's it like Tannic acid
2: uh, it's what's it like it's it's like really strong vinegar soy sauce mix it's it it it, it, it just pulls your face it, it's extraordinary smell makes your eyes water it really is an extraordinary smell. I can't describe it. It's not like anything I've ever smelled before.
1: Right. It sounds. It sounds. It sounds very, very powerful. It um is. <laughs> Just, just um, so, so that smell. Just going back to sound a bit. Um, you mm. talked about the instruments. I wonder. Um, prehistory, uh, famous for for its architecture as much as anything else in terms of the the structures that survive, stone circles, um, and, and burial mounds and the like. Is there anything in sort of the architecture of those places that is uh, linked to sound? Do you think? I mean, a lot of people. Well, a theory has been made that there was some something in Stonehenge in terms of the way it's set up to to hold sound or, or move sound around. Do you, do you have hold hold any uh, uh, on that?
2: Uh, yes, uh, there's been there has been work, and and uh, yes, uh, undoubtedly in certain. Prehistoric sites. One of the most famous one is the tomb of Mace Howe in Orkney, um, where the um, you know sound is amplified, um, and uh, yes, I, I'm sure they manipulated these things. Absolutely sure of it. Uh, they, they, you know, these these were very able people, um, and uh, I, I, you know. It, I don't think it was ever simple um, that it's it's often said that, um, you know, these sites were intended to strike awe. They were, but awe is quite a complex emotion. Why do you feel a sense of awe? And um, I think if your sense of awe can be linked to personal connections. So, you know, you're thinking, my God, dear dad, who departed a week ago, is beyond that place, you know. That, 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 to me, that's more awe-inspiring in some respects than going to Westminster Abbey and seeing Poet's Corner. You know, it it it's personal awe. And one of the things about life in prehistory, I think, is that the family was so important. Um, I've written a book earlier on um, about sort of family life in prehistory, and it's something I feel very strongly about. Um, And I think it was women who played a major part in giving structure uh, to prehistoric life and and a feeling of of community. Um, And uh, we we've got to embrace the complexity of you know what it meant to be a human being in prehistory, and I think it was as complex as it is today, um, and you know as rewarding.
1: Um, and, and just for our listeners, Maze House, that's yeah. uh, up in Orkney. That's a, a Neolithic yeah. site, um, part yeah. of a, a, a much broader Neolithic landscape. We might we yeah. might come back to that as, as we uh, if we've got time. See, but an amazing amazing place. To, yes. um, to visit. Just, just um, picking up on what you are just talking about there in terms of family, um one of the other really interesting things I took from your book is uh, is your observations on prehistoric attitudes to time. And I guess that links mm-hmm. into family in terms of ancestors. Mm-hmm. Um, you cite a really interesting example of a prehistoric site in Scotland uh, called Tomnaveri, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, um, which mm-hmm. seems to be planned and developed over the course of millennia which is clearly a very long time. Um, what does that tell us about, um, about prehistoric attitudes to time, to planning, to, to, to looking at the long durée, I guess? And how do we know it was planned over millennia? Actually, might be a, a good place to start. Uh,
2: well, we know that it was planned over millennia because we can actually date the phasing of the various sites in the area and how they changed. And you can do that with radiocarbon dating, so, you know, you can do it accurately. So we're in no doubt about that. Um, the uh, What fascinates me about time in prehistory, and indeed in time in, in, in early history, is the way it was regarded um, today and for, you know, the last... Three, four hundred years. We regard time in terms of hours, minutes, seconds, weeks, months, years, and they're all numbered. Uh, time is, you know, something which passes and is finished. It's gone. Um, it's successive. And there is no sense of time ever repeating itself. Um, In prehistory, I think, in fact, there's evidence to back this up, that people's attitudes to time were far more cyclical, circular, just as they are still today in rural areas. Um, So one of the things I learned when uh, I started being a, a full-time sheep farmer um, was that when you were talking to other farmers during lambing, say you'd go round and you probably hadn't been to bed for twelve hours, and you'd go round to, to see your neighbour and you'd be talking about the lambing, and uh, we'd he, I'd find, uh, but sometimes my neighbours, who, who you know, were sometimes quite elderly people, would be talking about problems they had lambing back in the 1950s as if they were yesterday. Each lambing season has its own characteristics, which are often revisited year after year. So, you know, in some years you're, you're having a lot of retained afterbirth and that sort of thing, but that's probably due to the condition of the grass and, as stated, the mineral content of the soil and so on. Uh, and these, these things come back um, and there's a sense of the, the cycle of the seasons, spring gives way to summer, gives way to autumn, gives way to winter, and each year is slightly different, but it's also slightly similar. It's linked by these similarities. And in prehistory, it was the cycle of the seasons that lay behind a lot of their religious thinking. Um, uh, it's not for nothing that the henges are circular and... Um, You know, the emphasis is on circularity. Iron Age houses are circular and they're very often built in the same way with the doorway facing southeast, so over, you know, rising sun and um, a central fireplace and hearth. And then people ate and prepared food on the south side of the hearth. The head of the family, or the most important person, had his or her chair facing the doorway. And then on the north side of the fireplace was the side where you slept. And that's incidentally when you do have burials, as sometimes you have child burials and that sort of thing in these houses. They're always on the north side, at least nearly always. So what what the layout of those buildings is reflecting is the passage of the hours during the day, so you have a very complex view of the world with, with the s- cyclical seasons and the passage of time in a circular way. And I don't think they would have thought in a linear way the way we do.
1: So that's, that's fascinating. mean, obviously you're absolutely right to identify the, the circularity of a lot of uh, the structures. But mm. they're, they're not exclusively circular. I mean, there are uh, long barrows, uh, which are, mm-hmm. which will break that mould, and they mm-hmm. have been interpreted to be a, a slightly different um, a different vibe, haven't they? In terms of uh, reflecting, um, well, you're going to be able to explain this better than me. In terms of uh, uh, sort of uh, farmers coming in and, and having a more communal attitude to to the past, if I if I remember my archaeology correctly. Mm. Um, I, actually, that that brings on an interesting point. I wonder whether you see anything different in terms of the perception of self And you talked about how people looked at mirrors and, and sort of trying to understand uh, their visage. But is there is there a sense that there was a, a different perception of the individual versus the community in prehistory? Uh, and was it more more focused on community and, and, and the long story of, of protecting a sort of a, a, a lineage perhaps rather than our more, uh, certainly our Western, Western European, mm. more individualistic approach?
2: Yes, that's uh, that's a very good point. Um, I think it, I think the community did matter more, and I, but I think this also applied in the Middle Ages. Um, you know, if, if, if you see, look at look at the illustrations in the Luttrell Psalter and, and some of the extraordinary uh, medieval illustrations of village life. Um, I I think that the community was was very important. I think we get a a very good idea of the relationship of the individual to the community if you examine burials in long barrows. Now, long barrows were built uh, just after 4000 BC uh, by the earliest farmers, Neolithic people. And these are mounds of earth with a, a central chamber, and bones are very often placed in side chambers off the central chamber or passage. And um, when people started, modern archaeologists started examining and excavating long barrows, they found these burials, at least very often they were uh, collections of bones. And when they examined them closely, what they found was not complete skeletons with everything present as you'd expect if you laid someone to rest, as we would do. What they found were, yes, skeletons, but very partial, missing all sorts of bits and pieces, you know, toe bones, leg bones, whatever, you name it, they were missing it. And the more they examined it, the the clearer it became that these bodies were actually taken out into the community and maybe circulated through hinges and important places. I don't know, none of us know. Um, Maybe back to the houses where they came from. Um, And quite often, you know, the actual bodies weren't treated as being particularly important because bits of bones were missing. It was what the Bones represented. It was John Smith that was important, and if, if when you returned John Smith to the barrow, he was missing his big toe, too bad. You know, it, it didn't really worry you. But what it's telling us is that these ancestors were important to the community more so than a family, because they're buried in a communal grave, and yet at regular intervals they were taken out back into the community and I think they played an important part in providing social stability and cement that held a community together.
1: And I guess as you said these, uh, these long barriers tend to date from the from the earlier Neolithic period so that's when farming is becoming established I guess you need um, fairly strong communities to allow for for effective farming and that sort of brings me on to the uh, another point, which is one of the, the biggest sort of fracture points in prehistory is the transition between the Mesolithic and the Neolithic, the Middle Stone Age and the New Stone Age, hunter-gathering to farming, or at least that's how it's kind of, you know, it, it's supposed to be a, a stark division and, uh, uh, and that's the archaeological nomenclature. Is that, um, was it a stark division and what do you think it meant in terms of sort of the site? Was it a different psyche between your hunter-gatherers and your farmers or did they sort of just sort of knock along quite well together?
2: Very good question. Um, my own feeling, I mean, if you'd asked me this question 30, 40 years ago, I'd have said there was a sharp split, very sharp split, uh, and that um, you know, hunter-gatherers were far more mobile than farmers who settled down. And uh, you know, it was a very big change, um, partly introduced by people coming in from the the continent who brought with them the idea of farming itself. But uh, since then, my attitudes have changed, uh, partly through a lot of my own work, actually, my own team's work. And one of the things we found when we were digging in Peterborough um, is that uh, the landscape uh, remained substantially structured in the same way for at least 4,000 years. And there were indications that that original structure probably went back a long time, a long way, um, back into uh, Mesolithic, into hunter-gatherer times. Um, For example, you know, most of the islands in the fens, and these are the, the drier bits of land that would have been islands before drainage. The Mesolithic, the the, the, the hunter-gatherer uh, flint flakes are always found, almost without exception, in the same places as Neolithic flakes for, for farmers. Uh, and we know that the arrival of farmers didn't, represent a complete population change. It was only a part of the population, probably. I don't know, estimates keep varying, but maybe a third of the population came into the country from outside. So uh, I don't think that the the, the distinction between hunter-gatherers and farmers was quite as big as we were taught when I was a student. Um, For example, I mean, we know that dogs were domesticated, um, dogs were domesticated by at least um, 8,500, maybe even 9,000 BC. We know that for a fact. Um, and if you can domesticate a dog, well, it's not a huge leap to, to, to domesticate other things. Uh, there's some evidence that hazelnuts, for example, were it could well have been uh, planted around the edge of woods. And they have to be managed in a very different way uh, hazel has, uh, if you're going to extract, if you're going to use them as a source of nuts as opposed to a source of wattle work for building hurdles and building walls of your houses. Those bushes have to be cut to the ground and you don't get nuts if you coppice a hazel. Um, so, you know, I think people did understand managing the landscape much more than we give them credit for in the hunter-gatherer period and uh, we know for a fact that they were coppicing um, because we found evidence for it at sites like star car from 8000 BC Um, and my own feeling is that the, the country was starting to be divided up at the end of the Ice Age, and then it got increasingly partitioned. And you, we always think of uh, you know, uh, migrant hunter-gatherers, that the, the Mesolithic hunter-gatherers uh, were itinerant, that they, 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 they wandered around at random. No. That's not the case. We know for a fact that many of them followed a fixed route where you, had, you were able to exploit different environments at different times of the year. And you didn't do it at random. You did, did it within your territory so that you didn't conflict with other people. You avoided friction. And was, there's a lot of evidence for this so that um, you know, there the wasn't a rapid switch from migrants heading all over the place at random, to settled farmers. It just didn't happen like that. Because people before the arrival of farming were living very structured lives in structured territories that everyone would have respected.
1: So, so, again, that kind of plays back into your, your, your general idea about people having quite a long view on, on the past. So you're seeing continuity mm-hmm. there between those two groups rather than a case of I'm a hunter-gatherer, so I'm different to you, you're a farmer. That you, you don't mm-hmm. see that that sharp divide. Um, I, I, I wonder, you just mentioned sort of travel and movement there and, and mm-hmm. how structured it might have been. Um, what What you can say about... Um, prehistoric people's attitude to travel and movement, and whether they wanted to travel for travel's sake, perhaps as as you know, that's quite a you know a modern concern, isn't it? People like to just go on holiday, travel to places. Is, 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 was that a thing in prehistory? Did people just travel because travel was an interesting thing to do? That's
2: a very interesting point. Um, there may have been an element of that. I'm sure there was. Younger people are always going to want to travel around. I think. Um, but uh, for a start, I think the most important thing is that travel took place far more often in Britain than we take, you know, than the, the, the we think. Um, uh, there have been bodies discovered near Stonehenge, for example, where the, the dead person had actually spent their youth in the Alps, and we know that from the analysis of the enamel of their teeth and that sort of thing. Um, and we know from uh, the discovery of the boat at Dover, the Bronze Age boat at Dover, is about, I'm trying to remember, about 1500 BC or thereabouts, that um, that boat was perfectly capable of crossing the Channel. It was a seagoing vessel. And we know about the remains of Bronze Age wrecks along the south coast because we found the Bronze Age cargoes lying on the seabed i suspect that around 1500 bc uh, there was probably ships crossing the channel every day unless it was a real storm blowing but you know most days there would have been several ships crossing the channel so there was regular uh, toing and froing between britain and the and the mainland in europe now you 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 get something similar Inland um, places like Stonehenge for example, uh, people came there from a long you know quite a long way away. They, they, many links have been established now between places like Stonehenge. well, the the, the famous link with Stonehenge is with the um, uh, South Wales um, and, and the, the, the Blue Stones. Um, which came from South Wales. And there's been a lot of research done recently by Mike Parker Pearson and his teams, um, which actually show that the stones used at Stonehenge probably came from, in fact, almost certainly came from a a burial mound uh, that was deliberately taken apart and taken to Stonehenge uh, to be used in the site there. And it was always thought, oh well, you know, this would have been done the most cost-effective way, cheap and easy way. In other words, put them on a boat and you know take them down to to, to Stonehenge uh, by sea. But no, no, they have probably taken over land, and you know had to be put on a boat at some point. But for the short distance, event then overland, because the point of moving the stones was for people along the way to see them and to respect them. And it was part of the ritual of building the new site. And to go back to our earlier point about the hunter-gatherers and the Neolithic farmers, um, Stonehenge is the most famous Neolithic monument of them all, Neolithic and Bronze Age monument, and it's built on a landscape that had been very important to people for at least 4,000, 5,000 years before the stone started being erected. So it was part of a long-standing tradition, which is another reason why I don't think that there was a clean break at any point when the farmers arrived. They continued to respect places that had been important religiously to people in uh, the Mesolithic times, right back to pretty well to the Ice Age. I mean, the some of the earliest evidence for a Stonehenge being important in very early times came um, when they excavated a trench near the Heelstone, um, which is the stone that sort of guards the entrance to Stonehenge and when this trench was first excavated they didn't realize what they'd found it was only um, Mike Parker Pearson's team going back to it later showed its two potential and that this is a quite a wide trench um, and it had been dug down to the underlying chalky uh, limestone and The stone at that point was traversed by a series of deep cracks, fissures, which had formed during the Ice Age um, and were aligned precisely on the uh, solstice, like Stonehenge. So the avenue, the processional avenue that leads into Stonehenge, is aligned on the solstice, but it's also aligned on these cracks in the soil underneath, and you wouldn't have been able to see those cracks when Stonehenge was built, because they had been buried under layers of soil accumulating. So, they would have been known about shortly after the Ice Age, from about 6000 BC, and that's one of the reasons why the site became famous religiously.
1: So that I think is 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 one of the most fascinating things. This idea again, it goes back to this this really long perception of time of, of yep. you know as you say Stonehenge. then has a really long backstory, and uh, it requires it behoves people to have understood that and respected it and known that you know that, there was some sort of history there. Mm. Um, sort of wrapping up a bit because we, we've chatted for a little while now. You have talked about Stonehenge a bit. Um, Stonehenge is, as you say. Probably the most famous prehistoric site um, in in Britain, though Maybe some of those places in Orkney would would uh, would have something to say about it as well. I, I just wonder. Uh, it's certainly the most visited. I think is you know one of English heritage's most popular visitor attractions and most iconic um, uh, prehistoric sites now for people. So so are we saying that Stonehenge and the Stonehenge environs, because archaeology has shown that it was you know was much more than just the stone circle. It was important the whole landscape around it. Mm. Um, was it a super important place in prehistory? Uh, and were other places as well that similarly important? I mean, was the Orkney Neolithic complex um, a comparator to Stonehenge in terms of, of, of importance? Um, what, 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 what do we know about that? Uh,
2: the short answer is uh, <coughs> we strongly suspect that Stonehenge and Orkney were, um, if not the significant Stone Age uh neolithic religious sites um but I, I think in some respects it's rather missing the point because where was the wealth coming from that allowed places like stonehenge to be built because it's salisbury plain is not naturally very rich you know it's not i mean compared to the Landscapes w- where I work in the fens, um, you know, the, we don't have stones, so we can't have um, stone henges, but we have huge timbers. Um, and, you know, the, the soil is as fertile as anywhere in Europe. Um, and the Thames Valley is immensely fertile, um, lo- huge areas of lowland England. Um, had landscapes, um, so-called ritual landscapes, so you know barrows and henges and other ritual sites uh, that compare very well with uh, Stonehenge, um, and they've they've completely gone. So I think that's why I'm slightly hesitating because we don't know uh, whether some of the timber henge monuments were could not have been as elaborate and. Uh, you know, the special as Stonehenge. And, of course, th- they, they would have been closer to the centres of population, which Stonehenge never was. So, yes, I do think Stonehenge is an extraordinary place. But, um, you know, a uh, little old seahenge is just, you could tuck it in one of the stones, probably, of, the, of Stonehenge. But in some ways, for me, uh, it, it does it for me better. I mean, we'd, we've probably learned more about prehistory from a site like Seahenge than even... Oh, well, perhaps I'm perhaps going to be a bit careful about saying this, but I mean, what other site in the world in prehistory can you make a reasonable estimate of the number of people it took to build it? At Seahenge, there were 51 axes used, we know this from the cutting edges of their blades so that tells us that the team erecting Seahenge could probably have been about 200 people if you allow for partners and whatever and just after we'd finished digging at Seahenge I was driving home and I had to pause in the village because there was a funeral and the road was blocked because you know, the, the hearse was having to reverse into the, into the church. And I looked across the churchyard and I counted the number of people in the churchyard waiting for the hearse to arrive. And there were about 200. And I suddenly thought, ah, <laughs> there's a direct link to prehistory. It gives you some idea of the scale of the ceremonies involved and really how things haven't changed that much.
1: Okay, uh, one last thing. We've covered quite a lot of ground um, yeah. and, and hopefully it's been illuminating for our listeners. But I wonder, is there one sort of final takeaway that you'd like our listeners, the podcast, and indeed readers of your book, to come mm-hmm. away with in terms of understanding prehistoric people and the way they thought about things? Because when you talk about Stonehenge in the book, you, as you said it earlier on, you've against making patronising assumptions about
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, prehistoric societies and their presumed simplicity. Um, what what would you like us to sort of understand about prehistory that perhaps is not well understood?
2: That they were exactly like us. They had a different way of looking at the world, but their attitudes to their mother, their father, their children, their families would have been, you know, the same. If you could, I sometimes think if I could go back and spend a week with a Bronze Age family, living in a Bronze Age house, uh, and assuming I could speak the Bronze Age language. I don't think it would be that different at all from going to visit friends nowadays. So what I'm trying to say is that they were like us. They are. They were us. Um, We mustn't think of them as being different. Um, and that that's what i think is terrible about attitudes to to history and to the to the distant past today you know it's a series of events that go back and x y and z but they were people and 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 we must remember that they they experienced life just as we do I'm, i'm really feeling this coming out of lockdown you know We're starting to rediscover the modern world. And prehistoric people would have had this sort of experience too. There would have been diseases, you know. Coming out of the Black Death, what was that like? You know, I I don't think our lives are that different. And uh, I think we must look at the past with far more respect and learn from it. And I certainly think politically we could learn a lot from the past.
0: That was Francis Pryor. His latest book, Scenes from Prehistoric Life, From the Ice Age to the Coming of the Romans, is out now published by Head of Zeus. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. Join us again tomorrow when Helen Carr will be speaking about the medieval power broker John of Gaunt.